Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Helena Andrews Dyer, welcome to Deconstructed. Yes, thank you for having me, Graham. You got it. And so, for our so our listeners know, Helena and I go way, way back. We were what cubicle neighbors back in what two thousand six, two thousand seven, when we were both at Politico before she went on to the Washington Post, and I went on to do to do other things. And then, then we were also neighbor neighbors. Yeah. Uh, in the neighborhood that you write about in in your new book, which we're here to talk about, which is called. The Mamas, what I learned about kids, class, and race from moms not like me. And so this is this is not, a as people who listen to this show know, this is not a parenting show. <laughs> but this to me isn't really a parenting book fundamentally. I think the parents who listen to this show will like it and they'll find it useful. But it's something much bigger than that. I mean, like, so and on this show, we talk a lot about the future of the Democratic Party, the Democratic coalition, and it's often described lately as kind of a coalition of black voters and college-educated white voters or people of color and college-educated white voters. But the party's also losing some significant vote share among voters of color without a college degree. And so while all of this is realigning itself, I think your book is really about you know what it's like to live as a middle-class black woman among mostly white college-educated liberals. Yeah. And there's so much in it uh, worth unpacking. But to kind of set the groundwork, you, you tell us a little bit about your own upbringing, which is, what is kind, of, kind of unique because you spent it in kind of multiple places that gave you different tastes of American culture. So set people up with where you came from. Oh, that's funny. Multiple taste of American yes. culture. That's very much my life, I think. So I'm from Los Angeles originally. My, if I, you go way, way back, my great grandmother came from Texarkana uh, during the Great Migration and moved to San Francisco and then sent for her children, my grandmother and my great uncle. Then they moved down to Los Angeles. And my mother is hippie lesbian woman, um, very free spirit. And she and I so grew up, I grew up mostly in South Los Angeles, which they call it now, that's a rebrand. Back then we called it South Central LA. And um, I also spent a large portion of my childhood on Catalina Island, which is 26 miles across the sea from those who know, for those who know the song um, from the coast of Southern California, San Pedro. And there on Avalon, which is the biggest town and my biggest town, I think when we lived there, there were between 2,000 and 2,500 people who lived there uh, full time. We were the only black people. <laughs> we were literally the only black people. I was the only little black girl on, on an entire island. And so that of course presented an interesting upbringing. It was also very religious. Um, it was just, 
it it was strange, <laughs> I will say. Idyllic in many ways because it was this really small town. Everybody knew each other. You know, kids were basically free range before people called it free range. You know, I did things that I would never imagine letting my child do at seven, eight, nine, ten, just like roam the streets at all hours in this like pack of kids. And then we moved from there back to Southern California and we lived in Compton in the early 90s, right after the LA riots. It was a huge culture shock, um, to say the least. Uh, and I also went, to, then I also went to like a fancy private school downtown. And from there I went to Columbia. So it's like I've gone, I have existed in a lot of different spheres and seen pretty much like every face you could possibly see <laughs> of American culture. And I think I didn't, realize that or synthesize that to someone in another interview said, you know, you exist in a lot of different like groups. And I was like, you're right. I've, I have been the only black girl in many situations. I've also been surrounded by black folks in many situations and black folks of all type, right? Of all socioeconomic backgrounds. And we don't really talk about that. I think within our own Black community, the striations of, you know, societal class within the community that often we don't talk about that in mixed company, but I've been in those situations as well. So I think when we moved to this neighborhood, Bloomingdale, when I first moved as a single woman, I remember you told me when I told you what streets I lived on, you were like, that used to be the largest open air drug market in DC. <laughs> and I was like, Grim, what? <laughs> and it was, it was when I lived there, it was still very much a neighborhood in quote unquote transition. When I lived there as a single woman and you know, mm -hmm. the years passed, the neighborhood changed, gentrification ramped up it is literally that zip code the zip code that we live in is one of the most rapidly gentrifying zip codes in the entire country and it's different it looks much much different than when i first moved here and all of that came into really sharp focus when i had a kid and so when you look back at your at your upbringing and your own identity, which one do you gravitate towards? Is it Because I think that also influences how then you see the, the new neighborhood that, that you're moving into. Do you think of yourself as the girl from Compton? Do you think of yourself as the girl from that white island? Do you think of yourself as the girl that went to Columbia? And has that changed over the last 15 years of, of you living there? That's interesting. You know, I, I write in the book in, in about class because I try to explore class pretty often in the book. And I talk about when a census worker came to our door and I was like, you know, running down your life story to, you know, this stranger and, you know, telling them about your college education, telling them about, you know, the range of money you make. And I remember she said, I was talking about me and my husband and she was like, well, uh-oh, power couple. And I was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Because I never view myself that way. I always I am still, I think anyone who grew up poor and I did grow up poor, even though we went, I went to private schools, I was always on scholarship. It was, you know, my mother thought that, you know, education was obviously the way you lifted yourself up out of circumstances. But I, I think if you grow up without much materially, not without much like love wise, but without much materially, you always 
consider yourself that. At least I do, right? Like mm-hmm. I write in the book, like I will never put more than $10 on a MetroCard because you can't freaking eat MetroCard wires. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not mm-hmm. giving money to Metro. I might need that for groceries. Like I still feel proud of having a refrigerator filled with food. Like that will never leave me. And so I always consider myself that person, even though throughout most of my adult life, right? I'm 42 years old. I have moved in different circles, right? Mm -hmm. That don't have a connection to that or an alliance with that. And I think that when I think about raising our kids, I have two girls, I always want to connect them with that part of me, right? And what I learned from growing up the way I did and but they doesn't always align, right? And the and the and the kids that they're surrounded with don't necessarily have that background either. So it's it's a constant like push and pull, I think. And yeah, no, I, I always consider myself just no. When someone says I'm like even saying in the book like I'm like middle class or upper middle class, like I still cringe. I still don't like I'm someone's gonna like snatch my card or something. You know, I I, I still do not feel that way. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Bloomingdale, the neighborhood, because in, in a lot of ways, it's a perfect uh, neighborhood to use as the prism for a story about race, class, gentrification, you know, what, and, you know, what it means to be living in, the, in these times. But also very specifically, it has some, it has some fascinating history. I learned from your book that uh, Samuel mm-hmm. Gompers, you know, the legendary uh, labor leader, lived in that neighborhood and was an active part of of driving the first uh, black homeowner out of the out of the neighborhood uh and then later it becomes this uh, the a place where uh, covenants that barred black people from buying homes were taken to the supreme court and overturned so samuel gompers i mean he's known as yeah. anti-immigrant uh you know a lot of his rhetoric around mm-hmm. around immigrants was familiar to you know the other kind of white union leaders of of the time but he wasn't necessarily as far as i understand i i I don't i guess i haven't gone too deep into gompers but he he was not like one of these like outwardly racist folks or outwardly Mm -hmm. anti-black and you write about how all of the all of the white neighbors in that neighborhood would would say the same thing we love black people Mm. well not love we just don't want not love we don't want them we don't love we don't love them no We, we, we like them but we don't want them in the neighborhood. Yes. And we are going to actively drive them out of this neighborhood. So can you talk a little bit about how Bloomingdale developed? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I learned a lot about the neighborhood as well. And I'm going to like open up to that chapter um, just so I like get a refresher course. But yeah, it started as this large estate, 50 acre estate on which 15 men, women and children were enslaved. Uh, when the owners of that estate died, their children subdivided it with the hopes of turning it into like a a suburb of official Mm -hmm. Washington, right? And this is like in the Victorian era. So in the the late uh, 1800s and specifically, obviously, they wanted white people to move in, right? It was it's, it was a white neighborhood. That is, there was no thinking that other people would move in. And the first black homeowner um, was this man, Francis Smith, who I believe went to Catholic. My research shows that he was like an engineering student at Catholic, but I couldn't like perfectly connect those dots. And I made that clear in the book. But yeah, and then the good neighbors of Bloomingdale, right? People who consider themselves, you know, good folks got together and pooled their money to 
kick this man out, right, to get him to leave. And then they started to do this sort of as an organization, as a civic organization, as a neighborhood organization, pull their money in order to sue anyone Black who was moving in to make them leave. And the craziest part of it was that in 1923, 500 white homeowners, 500, okay, that's a mob to me, right? <laughs> 500 white homeowners met on First and You, which now it's is- filling up the block. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, which is now where there's like a corner store, literally, I think the corner store right there is called First and You. They met and they marched on the homes of three black homeowners to tell them to leave. And this is what, they, can I read from this? This is what they said, like, they like handed them a note and this is what the note said. These men and women here are property holders of Bloomingdale, and they want you to know they resent to the limit your purchase of property in this section, and particularly your moving into the property. You may not have known that you were buying property in a white neighborhood, but whether or not you knew this, you did buy. And we want you to know that we expect you to vacate these premises. We will help you find a purchaser for the property and will cooperate with you in any way and every way possible if you will do the wise and courageous thing. Move out. We know the leaders of your own race agree with this position. This is the note that they handed three homeowners, right? This mob. And that continued, that continued for decades where people started to write, you know, racial covenants into the deeds of their home where it said you could not sell to someone who was non-white, right? Black folks, Hispanic folks, Jewish folks in some neighbor, in some sections of the city. And I couldn't, that like literally blew my mind knowing that I'm walking on these same streets, right? That was in 1923. That wasn't that long. And, you know, it was a hundred years ago, but that continued into the 40s and then early 50s when the cases went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, right, so you've and, got this, right? You've got this neighborhood busybody, Lena Hodge, yeah. that, you, oh, Lord. that you write about. Moves in, she moves in in the early, like I think 1909 or so. She moves yeah, in. Yeah, she was one of the first, right? yeah, she was one of the first homeowners on her row. And then she just, makes it her mission. Yes. Um, she's going to in, enforce these codes. And, you know, she's she's saying like, look, and she, and she was racist. It's like, she wasn't like trying to say otherwise. I remember no. you have a quote in there who says that she'd rather live next to a white criminal uh, than a black doctor. Yes. And so a man named James Hurd uh, moves in, who is kind of fair. It sounds like he was somewhat white presenting. Yes, uh, which I, they were. Which ends up being uh, part of the court case. She tells him, look, welcome to the neighborhood, I guess, but uh, I'm going to kick you out. Just just, mm-hmm. just warning you. So she, she sues him uh, to enforce the covenant. And then the court case to me is itself fascinating. So can you run, run through the, like, the arguments that the – and the NAACP takes up this case. The fact that Bloomingdale is right next to Howard University, I think, probably you know, benefited these families who were getting legal help from, from Howard, which is becoming a legal you know, real powerhouse at that time. So they, they go and the courtroom scene where they're interrogating the idea of race to me was just fascinating. Yes. So um, Charles Hamilton Houston, who basically like, you know, made Howard University Law School, what it is turned it from like a night school into this prestigious institution, he took on the Herd's case, right. And um, he argued 
herd v. Hodge, right? These two, Lena Hodge and her husband, Frederick, sued the herds specifically. They lived on the same block and they wanted them to leave because according to them, they, you know, had purchased this home that had a racial covenant in it. And they did purchase that home. And Charles Hampton Houston, he's in the case that he first argued. And then he ended up, this it ended up being a companion case to a Supreme Court case that they eventually won. But his argument at first was to point out that like race is a construct, right? And he says, you know, he asked Lena's husband, what makes the herds black, right? Like, why are they black? And, you know, what features, right? And Mr. Hodge says, he was like, oh, I would say the nose for one thing, the nostrils. And it's just like, what? Right, it's like in the, in the, <laughs> bo- the bottom part yeah, of the nose or something. It's the like- lower part of his nose. And it's like, what are you talking about? That's, so so because of his nose, the man should not own a home that he, stay in a home that he paid for, right? It's ridiculous. And then he moved on to Lena and he said, you know, what makes her white? Why are you white? And she goes, well, what makes you a Negro? How are you a Negro? And his response to it is so great. He says, I know that because you all say I am, right? And so that is just like, you know, goosebumps. It's like, yes, race is a construct. It's ridiculous. So I'm just going to point that out, right? I'm going to say this in, you know, a court of law. He then argued that the neighborhood wasn't even white per se, because it wasn't. At this point, almost 40% of the neighborhood, um, the homes there were owned by black homeowners. It was just creeping up, I think, let's say, um, eastward towards North Capitol, right? But those folks, those folks who were in like this like white chain of homes were still trying to cling to the identity that it was a white neighborhood, but it wasn't, it was changing around them, right? And then I think he argued this this idea that, you know, the fact that black homeowners, like what what's so bad about having a black homeowner, right? What, what did they do? He, he had all this evidence that the, those black folks were, keeping up their homes and being good neighbors and all of these things, right? So he just like laid that out, right? They lost, like they still lost at trial, but then it went to the Supreme Court and just him laying out that argument, him laying out just how, just showing how ridiculous all of this was, I think was a win, right? Because now that is in the court of law. That's part of public record. That is part of the first draft of history that these rules were completely ridiculous and the folks that were upholding them were doing so mm-hmm. completely you know against what was happening at the time right the neighborhood was becoming a black neighborhood then it goes all the way to the supreme court and then the supreme court strikes down racial covenants for the entire country right and, and the supreme court argument was pretty stark you had houston saying racism in america needs to end and you had the other side saying no actually discrimination is a is a public good it's not like a necessary evil it's like an actual good thing and the supreme court comes down and says no these covenants are banned you know that 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 forces the private sector to come up with mechanisms to continue to you know to, to push forward housing discrimination you red 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 lining, redlining and, exactly and, yeah didn't end racism did not end racism in real estate made, it made it become more creative yes um, absolutely but it, it enabled more black homeowners uh, to move into Bloomingdale. And so, as you write, by 1960 or so, it's almost a universally black neighborhood. Yes. You then have the the riots in 1968. You have white flight. You ha- And you talk about kind of upper middle class black flight yeah. as well. And and so through the 70s, 80s, 90s, the neighborhood is, is, is falling apart. Yeah. It's unloved. It's unloved. Yeah. 
until and which is, brings it to that the massive open air drug market that I mentioned to you. <laughs> uh, and then you have the wave of gentrification, you know that that first hits the you know the legendary kind of U Street area of mm-hmm. of Washington D.C. and then and then spreads toward toward Bloomingdale. And so, as you got there in two thousand and eight, how different was the neighborhood then to what it's like now? I think even when we moved here in two thousand and eight, and I was discussing this with a friend of mine who is black, and one of the core, I think, unspoken questions I, I'm asking in that chapter is what makes a gentrifier, right? And I consider myself a gentrifier. I'm not from here originally. You know, uh, what we pay in rent for our home is ridiculous and nobody would pay that, you know, 15 years ago. So like, I, I consider myself a gentrifier. I was talking to a friend of mine about it who owns a home not too far from mine. And she was saying that intent to her is key in the definition, right? Because she's black. She you know, purchased her home after, let's say 2008, around the time I moved here as well. But she bought it specifically because to her, it was still a black neighborhood. She wanted to live in a black neighborhood. That's why she bought here, right? Five years later, that's not what the neighborhood looks like, right? And she feels like this this newer wave that came, you know, let's say like from 2015 on came not because the neighborhood had a black identity, but because it didn't. Mm-hmm. Right. And because, you know, folks who couldn't buy in Georgetown could now buy here and get the space here. Right. Mm-hmm. Not because it had a specific black community, a black identity. And that I thought was really interesting because no one had explained it to me like that. But it has changed pretty drastically. I told the story in the book, like I was trying to sublet an apartment I was renting at the time and for like the summer, I think I was going away and, you know, when people would come, they'd be shocked. You know, they'd be like, oh, where is this place, right? Because Mm. right across the street was a trap house. You know, it's literally within five years, that house, that house is sold for a million dollars. So it's just like, it, it changed so drastically and so quickly to where we felt more comfortable walking these streets, saw more faces that look like ours, to now I can go to the playground with my daughters and they'd be the only black girls there. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And speaking of that playground, I thought one of the most profoundly kind of revealing and layered 
stories in in the book, which is filled with them, is this is a story of this kid Major at the playground. Uh, I guess it's the first time you meet you meet Major, and he's he's uh, he's chasing a little white girl around the playground, who's there with her kind of cool dad. He's got like a he's got the <laughs> the a, a t shirt on with a band that you've never heard of. So the shaggy hair it might have been me <laughs> right so um it was grim no it's it was, and so never, never. uh so t- tell us about that moment at the at the playground that i think was a really evocative story in the book because it revealed to me so many things about how we conflate race and class in our own minds, whether it's, you know, how I view it as a, as a black woman, how white people view it, how, you know, a black person in a different socioeconomic status than mine views it, right? Because I get into that at the very end of the chapter. So what happened was we go to this playground, right? Which is fine because the playground actually used to be an elementary school, um, but the neighborhood, you know, emptied out a couple decades before and they tore it down. Um, and so now it's this like green space, but it is directly across the street from public housing. But it's this like beautiful new green space. So it is literally like that playground can be a microcosm of so many different things, right? People, different class, different races nannies, like folks smoking blunts, you know, it's just like all these things happen at that playground on a regular basis. And in this particular morning, I was there with my husband and my mother and our daughter, our older daughter at the time, and and another white couple who were there like on a play date, this woman I had met, you know, at baby yoga. Okay. (laughs) And there's a little boy there who was a, was from across the street from, from public housing. And we knew that because we found out later because we, found his dad later and he just like he was cutting up okay he was harassing this little girl of course it was a little white girl trying to steal her bike it was more than just like play and his parents were nowhere to be found right and so we're trying to help out my husband and i like yo like chill out like she can't like we're just trying to help the dad because that's another weird thing that i think happens like you know white parents i think all parents feel this way Mm -hmm. but definitely like white parents don't feel like they can Mm -hmm. like publicly you know reprimand a black child that they that is not there and that is true you should not do that but he it was like this weird thing going on and so finally we sort of like mitigate the situation and by we i mean my husband mitigates the situation and actually as the debt let me let's let's linger on that moment for one second because i i always i also thought that was profound as well you talk about mm. how you so many so many white parents and and like you said mostly all parents are nervous about kind of disciplining say a black kid um probably any kid but definitely a black kid in yes, on, on a neighborhood playground and it it kind of harkens back to a somewhat real somewhat mythologized era of you know i grew up in a little small town and it was one of those towns where any any mom there was like allowed to discipline like any, mm-hmm. any kid there, um, mm-hmm. actually white white or black like right in that in that neighborhood. But you just it's true you just wouldn't do that. And so part of me was thinking like we will know kind of the progress our racial progress if we start <laughs> if, we, if we start seeing white parents feel comfortable disciplining black kids on mm. playgrounds if they're cutting up in a way that becomes dangerous like like it was with with major like that's yeah that's in some ways that would actually be a sign of progress but we're not there and so the white parents are oh we're nowhere close okay i'm just gonna try to diffuse or just ignore this and it sounded like band dad 
was just trying to ignore it, hoping it would just resolve itself, but it didn't. Yes. So Rob had to, your husband, Rob, yes. stepped in. He had to step in as, you know, the six foot four football playing looking uh, black man in his slacks and button down, you know, steps in, diffuses the situation. And so, and then my mother was also there. So she's also sort of trying to get into it. And I'm just like, oh, I can't believe this. So finally, um, as they're leaving, Bandad and his daughter, he, so they're leaving and we're like, yeah, you know, sorry about this, but obviously this kid is not gonna stop like harassing yours basically. And as he's walking out, he turns to Robert and I and he says, you know, hey, just, you know, can I get your number? And we're like, what? We don't know you like that. Like, no. Um, but he's like, yeah, because there's this program in the city where kids can get free bikes. It seems like he really wants his own bike. Like there's all these programs in the city, right? Trying to like enlighten us, mm -hmm. Robert and I, about this thing. And it took us a minute, but as we're staring at him, and I know the looks on our faces had to be just just slack jawed and we're just like and i say because i'm just i have zero filter i was like this isn't our bleeping kid you know i say down mm -hmm. like you think this is our kid you know i was like look at us and look at him right and and even i i didn't say that that's what right. i'm thinking in my mind and even as i'm thinking it in my mind i'm like disgusted by that thought because i'm just like yeah of course he's my kid any black kid in my freaking arm length is a kid of mine you know what i mean like but the fact that he this parent this white parent could not even see the difference between us all right like this little boy clearly isn't ours you you see what how we came as this family unit your, your and you pba see how, free bottles and right exactly you see how like our little girl is acting as opposed to him and it's like i think as we were looking at him so shocked he's it sort of dawned on him and, and and it was clear he was embarrassed by it and but he didn't say anything he was just like oh oh so sorry uh see you later and just like ran away right and we just had to sit with that right like we're just sitting with like oh they don't they literally don't see us like the title of that chapter is the invisible mom like they do not see a difference right not that i'm even like wanting them to but i asked the question in the book like Okay, but if we are, you know, if after Barack and Michelle, right, the real life Cosbys declared themselves as like members of this American society, and yes, there are black people who look like us who are out there, it's like, should we not demand to be seen like that, right? Should we not demand to be seen like that? But at the same time, I never want, you know, I don't want to separate myself from this little boy, you know, like, right, of yeah, course I don't. So it's just this weird, like, ickiness there in terms of class. That's what made that section, I thought, so, so rich is that you then go into a lot of soul searching and you had, you had a great line. You said, you know, who were we to separate ourselves from this boy? Like, you, you begin with this indignity of like, you know, how, how dare you? And then, mm. you, and then there's, then it's like, oh wait, but like, why am I trying to separate myself from this, from this boy? Which right. you know, go, goes back to those questions of, of identity that you're constantly being confronted with. Like, you know, who, who am, like, who am I? Which you, which you explore throughout the book. So 
how is Major? Like, did you have you kept up with Major? I have not. I have not seen him in a while. My, my, when my mom lived with us, and she lived with us for a year, um, and I talk about that in the book too. Anyone who's like in an intergenerational sandwich generation situation uh, knows how hard that is. But she lived with us for a year, and she was. She, she used to see him at church. She, she was more in the community in that way. She would see him at church in the community garden and they would hang. But I have not seen him since. Also, because we stopped going to that park for a myriad of reasons. One, that was one of them, uh, just because the way class and race collided in that place on several occasions was just more than I wanted to have to deal with when I'm playing with my kids. Um, but two, there have also been like, a bunch of shootings, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it became dangerous to be over there because that's what the neighborhood is still dealing with. So yeah, all of that, I think it was another incident that happened at that same playground where I was there with my black mom friends. And one of my black mom friends, this woman I call Lynn, sort of another little boy was acting up towards her kids, right? And we all black in here now. And she like marched him out of the playground to his parents and they were his mother who was like sitting under the picnic table and the awning. And she was like, oh, he's he's done for now. He's just like acting up. This is my, my friend Lynn said, who is black, sends him to his mom. And then she just like comes back and starts playing with her kids. I was like shocked. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe she did that. Only because I'm so like anti-confrontational. So, and then the mother, of this little boy came up to me and she was like, well, what happened? And I wanted to be like, my name is Bennett. I'm not in it. I don't know what this is about. But I said to her, I was like, you know, he was just, he was being a little rough. He was pushing people down the slide, like in a dangerous way, right? I was like, he was being a little rough on the slide. I think maybe he just needs a break. And she said like, okay, but this is a public place. And I was like, yep, I'm with you. I agree. And she was like, I would expect that from them is what she said to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking like, wow. You know, like it was just this moment where I was like, am I them? You know, is it me? Am I the villain? And it just like, again, because class comes up in these ways that I hadn't really deeply investigated before having kids. And I continue to investigate and do in the book because how I think about it and what I say about it and what I do, right? that's how my kids are going to think about it. That's how they're going to like sort of form their own identities and contextualize who they are as people. And yeah, I don't, I, it's not an easy answer. Mm-hmm. It's something I'm constantly wrestling with, but I think it's something that we assume we all just know, like you step into this new identity or you, you climb up this ladder and now you're here in this new space. And it's just like, no, it's not that easy. And it's not that black and white to be, you know, literal about it. And how, how did you see it change, particularly in your in your mama's groups post post George Floyd? Because your your book runs through this massive you know social transformation that that we've gone through in the U.S. It does um, social transformation that we've I don't know have we gone through it? Are we going through it? I don't we know. We went through it. Um, yeah, exactly. That we at least you know raised our hands about at one point. Mm-hmm. But I think what was most interesting to me as I explained the arc of like the mommy groups, which, you know, I entered when I had our first daughter and saw that they were so blindingly white, specifically the ones about in this neighborhood. And I joined them because I love this neighborhood and I want to be able to walk the streets and know my neighbors and know people and have my kids know people, all this stuff. It was very white. But at first, I remember with our first daughter, I felt 
like, okay, I'm just like moonlighting as this woman without cares. I just go to baby yoga, baby music class, our happy hours at Boundary Stone, you know, the farm's market, farmer's market. I'm just like living this other life. And then obviously the pandemic happens. George Floyd is murdered. The world changes in a way, it doesn't change, but the world wakes up at least in, in, in a way for a time. And I think that what I found most interesting about the women that I knew well, right? Cause it's this larger group of like hundreds of people, but the women that I knew well, immediately sort of jumped into action. It was a very much DC type A intensive mother thing, but just jumped into action and were like, okay, what books do we get? How to like, like raising an anti-racist child, right? Making sure your child isn't anti-black, isn't anti-Asian. All of that suddenly became another piece of like the mothering parenting duty list, right? Uh, another bullet point to be literal. And that was two things, both, you know, it enraged me at first because I thought, of course, this is what we do. We get the books, right? Such a DC response. Like, what are the books I need to be reading? You know, what are the TED Talks? What are the BIPOC bookstores I should be buying these things from? And like literally make an Excel spreadsheet about it, right? Um, same Excel spreadsheet that the daycare list is on and the summer camp stuff, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the yeah, piano lessons. And so there was that piece of it where I thought like, oh, of course, this is just all of a piece. But then I, when I sat with it, I thought, well, thank God they're doing this. You know, like, thank God that they consider this also part of raising children. Because I think as a Black mother, and I'll say this explicitly in the book, but something that I've kind of ruminated on since, as a Black mother, I know I'm raising Black kids. Or at least that's that's important to me, right? It's not important to all Black parents, but that's what is important to me, raising two Black children who have a Black identity, how I define it, right? But I don't think white parents think they're raising white kids, mm-hmm. you know? And right. I don't think they have a true sense of what that means. And Right, that's what it means to but in be privileged. This, you're just right? raising kids. Right, exactly. But you're raising white kids right? You're raising kids that are going to be the ones who say something racist to mine. And because you don't realize that, you don't realize all the things you're doing that supports this ideology, this white supremacist ideology, even though you don't believe it, because you live in DC and you're liberal progressive, you would have voted for Obama five times if you could. You are still supporting a a white supremacist ideology in in what you do, even if it's quote unquote, unintentional, right? And I don't think folks recognize that before. And I think they do, or at least some folks do now. And you you write a little bit about what it's like to be on the the other side of that in a really interesting, and I call it eye-opening way. You know, because racism is so omnipresent in this country that even things that you in the book will like say, objectively, you understand that, the thing the person said was not actually coming from a racist place. It's still received kind of in that way. And one example would be uh, this comment a, a, a mother made where she said, you know, well, you know, you can't, you can't compare these toddlers. You can't compare <laughs> these babies. And it's like, on the one hand, like that is perfectly good advice. Like any, any parent who goes around comparing the development of their kid <laughs> to other kids, uh, at, at every playground or at every class 
is going to drive themselves completely insane because kids all Absolutely. develop in different rates. And like, that's just a thing that a, a helpful mom would say to another mom. But then just because of the world we live in, it's, it, it, it's received subjectively as, wait a minute, am I sure that this is coming from a, where, where is it? What are you talking about? Why can't we? Or, right. do, you, or do you not? Right. So I feel like there's, there's so, so much of that. And was it made better or worse kind of post uh, <laughs> Floyd? I think it was made better only because, and this is another major theme of the book, you know, interracial friendship and what it entails if you truly want to be friends with someone who's different from you, right? Can, you know, on all the PR materials for the book, it was like, say, can white moms and black moms be friends? Obviously that, that I would never say that to someone, but like that is like this core issue. And I think that part of it is trust and trust is built over a really long time. And you have to have the patience, if you want a true connection, right? That you have to have the patience for that to be built up. So at the beginning, of course, I'm not gonna, I don't trust the place. I don't trust the intent because I don't know you, right? And there is a wall that women of color, people of color build up around themselves when it comes to interacting with other folks. Of course we do that, right? Why wouldn't we? It's protective. But, and I think that from the white parents' perspective, it's just like, I can't get through. I don't know how to connect. I I think I'm saying the wrong thing, all of that. And it's like, okay, fine. Yes, it might be uncomfortable for you. I'm uncomfortable all the time, right? I'm a black person living in America. It might be uncomfortable for you. But if you have the patience because you actually want a true connection with me, then you'll fight through the discomfort. And I have found that among the true friends, right? Like when I bring up something, you don't say, well, no, that wasn't what she meant. Or, oh, no, she didn't. You know what I mean? You don't see me. You don't validate. Mm. And I think once you, you don't really see my humanity. And it takes time, like, Deneen Milner, who's an incredible author and publisher of children's books that celebrate Black joy, she said to me, she was just like, I know in my, you know, 50 some odd years on this earth, you have a big hill to climb to make me trust you. And I just think some people don't want to climb that hill. And I found after, right, in this post whatever point that we might be in in this country that there are some people who are willing and those are the people that I actually have true friendships with or would consider true friends and honestly would would who I feel comfortable having my kids around Mm -hmm. and so to to finish up because I know you got to get running um in most in most parenting books the the husbands are basically they're either the punching bag or the (laughs) punchline or or often both and and Rob Rob in this book oftentimes plays kind of rev- a reverse role. Like he's, mm. he seems to be the one who's got his head screwed on straight um, while, while you're losing your mind. And you, you have one line where you say, being black didn't inoculate me from being a maniac. Uh, <laughs> and, and Rob can off, often see through that and, and kind of settle, settle you, guide you through some of, some, some of these moments that are more anxiety producing. There was a, a funny one where uh, you're like making fun of what, what was it a stroller stride yes and, yeah and he's like look just, just <laughs> if you want to go just go like i know right. you, i know <laughs> he's you like wanna just go. say you want to go just say, say you want to go girl just, just say you want to go so how, how did you end up deciding to make make rob the the wise character in the, in the book <laughs> and kind of how how has his relationship to the neighborhood changed 
I think it's funny. Like, I mean, you know my husband very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he is the mayor of most places that he mm-hmm. enters, whether it is a bar, a basketball court, or, you know, the sidewalk. And I think I wanted to, one, it is a, a motherhood story, right? But I'm not a single mom, right? And shout out to single moms. I was raised by a single mom. I am awesome. They are amazing. But I'm in this with someone. So I knew that he needed to be a major character in the book because he is in this with me, right? He doesn't have the same neuroses I do, but he is there and he is privy to this constant, you know, internal conflict I'm having because I'm telling my partner about it. So I wanted to make sure that he, you felt him throughout because he is there. He's not invisible. He's not this, you know, Charlie Brown, womp, womp, womp character. Like he is there. And, but my husband's also very private. So I didn't dig into some of the deeper things that him and I would have like talked about. Um, But I wanted to make it clear that we were constantly talking about it. And it was a running dialogue between the two of us, how we raise our girls in general, and then how we raise them in this neighborhood, shoulder to shoulder with people who don't look like us on either side of the ladder. So I wanted to make him in there. Everyone knows, you know, Rob is really funny. He He is very much that Midwestern salt of the earth, you know, type person. So I, I wanted to make that clear and just give him a, a place in the book that was significant. Um, it's funny because people always folks will talk about his quote unquote character in the book. And I'll say, well, like, has he read it? You got to ask him. I sent it to him a year ago. Has he read the book? <laughs> I don't think he has. I do not think he has. He'll, he'll, if he does, he'll find the pimple popping scene and he He'd be like, oh my god! Ah, well, that is one that he does know about, and and and, and even that was a stretch. That was that was as as that was pushing the line. That was pushing the line. But I thought <laughs> it was too funny. It was too funny. I had to put it in there. Well, the book is called "The Mamas: What I Learned About Kids, Class, and Race from Moms Not Like Me" by Helena Andrews Dyer. Helena, uh, thanks so much for joining me. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. And we are due for a play date and all of that very Indeed. soon. <laughs> Indeed. Our playground are yours. <laughs> yours, yours. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.